Turn to the book of Joshua. All right. What are you going to be living for? What is your life going to be about? In your old age, when you look back on your life, how will you have lived it? Like Johnny and I talk about in Sunday school a lot, you guys are at a crossroads. You're transitioning from kids to adulthood. Some of you are about to leave the nest. You'll have more and more freedom than you've ever had before. You're learning life skills and truths about God's word that will help you navigate life's big decisions. If you're not good at bowling, what do, pe- what do you, you use? The little bumpers, gutter guards, bumpers. If you're like me, you, you need it. The gutter guards come up so the bowling ball will go down the lane and hopefully hit some pins. Your parents, grandparents, guardians, and people like us are like bumper guards. We're here to help you. Bump, when things, uh, we're not going the right way, we bump you in the right direction. But there's coming a day when we won't be around, your parents won't be around. And what kind of person are you going to be, really? That time right after graduation reveals the person you're really going to be, what you're really going to live for, those freedoms you're going to have, the parents that are not going to be around. What's going to give you the power to live for Jesus when you're bombarded with every kind of temptation and everybody's doing it? There's a famous place in the book that we're going to cover tonight where a man stands up in front of a younger generation and he wants them to think about the kind of people they're going to be. Who are they going to be, and who are they going to serve? Tonight we're going to cover the book of Joshua, and let's see how he lived and the things that powered his choices he made and the role he played in redemptive history. Joshua speaks to these concerns you have, and he made choices that you need to make, and he found strength to do the hard things. So let's look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all the people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right, to the left, that you will be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate it day and on, on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, 
Go through the camp, tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half-tribe Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you at the east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over the head of your fellow Israelites. You are able to help them until the Lord gives you rest as he has done for you until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you've commanded us, we will do. And whatever you send us, wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obey Moses, so we obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Verse 18, whoever rebels against the word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them, will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. It's the word of the Lord. So here's a brief overview of the book of Joshua. The primary focus of the book of Joshua is conquest. In chapter 6, the conquest begins. The first Canaanite city they must defeat is Jericho. Israel marches around the city six days with the priests carrying the ram's horn before the Ark of the Covenant. And on the seventh day, they circle the city seven times. The priest blows the trumpets and the people let out a great shout and the walls came down. And the conquest begins at that point. Jericho is like the, it's like the beachhead, the very start of the conquest. From that point, they enter the land and attack it. Chapter 7, you see the sin of Achan. Chapter 8, the conquest of Ai. Chapter 9 through 13 talks about the kings Joshua defeated and the people Israel defeated. Chapter 13 through 21 talk about the land allotment, the, the land given to all the 12 tribes of Israel after it has been taken. Chapter 23 and 24, Joshua delivers that farewell message like I mentioned earlier. Joshua recalls how God brought them to this place. He gives them a short biblical theology, kind of what we're doing now on Wednesday night, talking, them, talking about how God raised up Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldees, from Egypt to, uh, to where they're at now. In Joshua's final farewell message, he calls them to put away the gods of their forefathers in Joshua 24. And he says this, Choose for yourself who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he warns them that if they keep the commandment, they'll be blessed and they'll stay in the land. If they don't, they'll be cursed. Then Joshua dies at age 110. Through Joshua, the promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. The story reaches the satisfying ending, at least on a provisional redemptive level in history. God promised Abraham a, a people of a great number and a land, and through the events in time, God fulfilled that promise. Joshua 21, if you want to flip there. This is Joshua 21, 45. No one, not, not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Joshua 23, verse 14. Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth, 
And you know with all your heart and soul that not one of the good promises of the Lord, promises the Lord your God made, has uh, to you has failed. Everything was fulfilled to you. Not one promise failed. So is that it? God promised Abraham a land, a people, and Joshua brings that to be. When I'm watching a movie with the boys, to aggravate them, sometime during the story, the hero like suffers a defeat. And I'll go, the end, let's cut it off. And early on, the boys are like, that can't be the end of the story. He's got he's to come back. He's got to de- defeat the enemy. We later learn in Psalms and Hebrews that Joshua's rest was a type of what is to come. The rest that Joshua gave Israel pointed to the rest that God would give his people through the Messiah, of which Joshua was a picture. All throughout Scripture, God communicates in types and shadows. He shows us the dimension of the shadow before he shows us the body that casts that shadow. There is yet a greater land, a greater kingdom, a greater Joshua to come, and the greater day of judgment. At one level, the promise is the blessing to Abraham with a people and a land. Another level is the promise to bless the world through a descendant of Abraham, a savior of the world who would come through his bloodline. The writer of Hebrews picks up this verse in Psalm 95 and further explains this event, which Joshua was an eschatological picture. Hebrews 4, 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. If anyone enters God's rest, also rest from their works, just as God did from his. Eschatology is the final state of something. The Bible uses the word rest to talk about a final state of God's plans. The rest, the reason for the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, was to remind the people that they're not in a holy state. They're not in their final state. They're not confirmed in righteousness. This concept goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Adam was given a task to fulfill the law. But he sinned against God and imputed sin all to humanity with his guilt and had to be removed from the Garden of Eden. We need a new Adam. We need a new, um, but before the new Adam comes, God creates an Eden-like situation in which to accomplish this, which is, a prom- which is the promised land, the holy land, the land that Joshua here is commanded to take possession of. Think about Joshua like a bulldozer. Joshua's task was to clear out the holy place for God's people and for, and for God. Mankind needs a new Adam to pass the test in the garden. The holy place is a the holy land is a reissuing of the Garden of Eden. The Israelites were to be faithful until the serpent crusher came from among them to defeat the ultimate enemy of sin, death, and Satan. Satan being the serpent from the first garden. To do this, to create a new holy place, Joshua must drive out all the unbelieving people of the land, to kill them, to destroy their works, just like Adam was supposed to drive out the serpent. Joshua must erase their culture, even kill non-combatants, Canaanite women and children. 
Joshua devoted every false idol and pagan thing to destruction to clear out a holy place for God and his people. Skeptics go after this book. They point out the appearance of evil in Joshua and God for calling him to it. Two important things to remember when skeptics talk about talk like this. Number one, God is holy and he must punish sin wherever it's found. We're not going to apologize for that. The Canaanite people deserve punishment like all people do, like we do. The Canaanites, who are not driven out, we later see, draw the people away to false worship in an attempt to derail God's plan to bring in the Messiah. And number two, God can judge at any time. God is patient with the wicked. At different times, God brings in judgment day on people before the great day of judgment in typological form. Theologians call this the intrusion of the kingdom, the kingdom of God breaking into the world before the great day of judgment. We see this in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and here in the conquest with Joshua, and finally God's righteous judgment on the cross. But you'll hear skeptics say, what about loving your enemies? Joshua's not loving his enemies here. Loving our enemies is part of a common grace ethic, which at this point is put on pause. And let me explain what common grace means. For society to function and not be complete anarchy or lawlessness, God gives believers and non-believers morals, values, and abilities so that society can function. This is, a, this is from an article from Ligonier Ministry. Look at the world around us. We notice there isn't, that there isn't only evil in it. Non-believers and people who worship idols enjoy health, prosperity, make medical, uh, helpful medical and scientific discoveries. People who don't believe in God open daycares, orphanage, hospitals, and make large donations to charity. Non-believers are capable of writing books, making novels, composing songs, and making beautiful works of art. We see this in Genesis with Cain. Cain kills Abel, and there's, and there's nothing in Scripture that says that he was restored to God. He's, he's a child of the devil. But Cain's descendants went on to develop metallurgy, uses of, with metal, Wind and stringed instruments and other things that were good for humanity. We see this in Genesis chapter 4. God blessed these unbelievers with abilities. <clears throat> any, good, any goodness from an unbeliever is ultimately from the Lord in a common grace way. Jesus said that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rains on the just and the unjust. We see that in Matthew 5. It says he is kind uh, to the ungrateful and evil in, in, in Luke chapter 6. But this goodness given to unbelievers does not lead to their salvation. It's only to serve God's purposes in history. Like I said, there would be complete anarchy if, anarchy if God did not restrain evil. Society would not function without God's common grace. This is why you... This is why you meet unbelievers who may be kind and generous, may be kind and generous than, than some of us. God is behind that goodness. Another part of God's common grace is this delay of judgment, which we've seen so far. God can destroy the wicked at any time and end all this foolishness. 
He is patient to let human history continue so people, can fur- people further down the timeline and in different parts of the world will be born and come to know Jesus. So there's a bigger redemptive plan at play with Joshua taking the land. Joshua is building a theocracy that reflects the value of God's holiness in the heavenly realms. For this reason, common grace is suspended for this period of time we call the theocracy. Inside the boundaries of the Holy Land, if you break the commandment, you are stoned to death. Just like in the day you eat of it, you will die. Judgment day will come for those outside the land, but at this time and place on earth, judgment has come on those in the land Joshua is conquering. The reason why God put a pause on common grace to further the, is to further the promise of his saving grace. God put a pause on his common grace here in Joshua for the wicked to further the promise of his saving grace for his elect people. So here's some common, common grace ethics. We love our enemies and seek to do them good as opposed to intrusion ethics, which is what we see here in the book of Joshua. You're, you are God's instrument to slay the wicked and uphold God's character in his holy land. These intrusion ethics continue through the theocracy throughout the history of Israel until the new Adam fulfilled all righteousness. The ultimate purpose of, of Joshua came when we see Jesus identifying with humanity in baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus lived the perfect life we failed to live and obey the law fully to fulfill it. Adam failed to drive out the serpent. Jesus cast out the true serpent. In John 12, 31, it says, Now the judgment's come in the world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. Joshua paved the way for the new Adam, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what should our attitude be toward non-believers? Should we take up the sword like Joshua? Some of you may want to, especially when they, in this time and culture, there's so much lunacy. No, the answer is no. Because we see this common grace order is reestablished once the new Adam has finished the work of bringing righteousness to his people. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 43, you've heard it said, love your enemy, and hate your, I'm sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father. Jesus is not contradicting the actions of Joshua because Joshua was given a certain task at a certain time in a certain location to make Jesus' uh, salvation possible. We see in Matthew 5, this common grace order will continue until the great day of judgment. Common grace, intrusion of the kingdom, back to common grace. It says in verse 45, he calls, this is, this is Jesus in Matthew 5, he calls the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. So let's be very clear, we should love our enemies Preach the gospel to your enemies so that you can make them, make the, your enemies your friends. And Jesus says, some of your friends may be enemies. He says, the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, loves me. 
And God knows who are truly his. When you, just as a way of just reading the Bible better, when you read scriptures and see a command, ask yourself, where is this at in redemptive history? Certain commands have certain different eschatological context behind them. So Joshua had a difficult task. How do you, when you're faced with something difficult, how do you summon the courage to do something hard? Where does your bravery come from? Taking, taking the land, I mean, putting myself in Joshua's shoes, it's amazing what he had to do. And what we're going to learn in a second, 40 years ago, people shrank back from doing the things he's called to do right now. Bravery, doing the hard things in life, talking to that difficult person, making a difficult decision. This book speaks to those issues. You see God being faithful to his promise in the midst of what seems like impossibility. Think about what the task Joshua was given. How did Joshua get the strength to enter the land and face the hordes of pagan warriors who were prepared for their invasion? That's before him. The Canaanites were before him. And then behind him are a people with a history of, of being cowards. <clears throat> they just spent 40 years, 40 years wandering in the wilderness because they didn't believe God would help them take the land. Turn to Joshua chapter 5. In, jo- in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua is standing on a hill looking at the lights of Jericho in the, off in the distance. It's the calm before the storm. It's the night before D-Day. D-Day is the day when the Allies entered Nazi-occupied France and made their push through the heavily fortified land to Berlin to defeat Hitler in World War II. Jericho is the beachhead for Joshua and the Israelites. Jericho is a mega fortress and is the first city Joshua needs to conquer on his quest to secure a holy place for God and his people. There's, there's so many bosses for Joshua to fight against. You know, you play a game, you're given a mini boss to make sure you know the, the game mechanics and skills. It's straight to the wall fortress. It's linked straight to Calamity Ganon. But here it is, 40 years later. That'd be a tough, that's a tough call, going straight to Calamity Ganon. You're laughing because you know it's tough. But here it is, 40 years later, Joshua is in his 80s. He doesn't have the strength of his youth. He knows there's a possibility. Think about it. He knows there's a possibility. People will lose heart and shrink back. As he's thinking about these things, he encounters a mysterious warrior. Look at Joshua 5.13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Verse 14. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the Lord, army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What does my Lord have for his servants? The commander of the Lord, the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
Who is this mysterious figure? And what does this mean? What's interesting about this moment is Joshua meets the one he foreshadows. The warrior is not an angel because Joshua takes off his sandals and worships. If you remember in Revelation, John does this, and the angel says, don't do this. I'm an angel. I'm, I'm a servant just like you are. God tells Moses in the burning bush, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I believe this is Jesus. He's the commander of the Lord of hosts here. Also, a warrior with a sword drawn is, is another image of returning back to this garden setting. What's the last thing Adam and Eve saw before they left the garden? Do you know? What's the last thing they saw? Angels, fiery swords guarding the way back in. And we see this again before Joshua enters the Holy Land. Joshua meets the source of his strength. His age, he's not 40 anymore. 40 years before, him and Caleb go up to this place. They can take it. They're in their prime of life. He is not in his prime of life in any way, form, or fashion. His age and the willingness of his people do not matter to Joshua. If God is for him, who can be against him? But look at the answer to the question. Are you for us or for our enemy? And I love this. Neither. In other words, my sword, the commander of the army of the Lord, is saying, my sword will turn on you if you act like the Canaanites. And later on, we see God punishing the people of Israel for their wickedness. God shows them and us throughout history, we need a covenant keeper. We need a greater Joshua to give us rest. If you're here this evening and you don't know the Lord in a saving way, look to the greater Joshua. Look to Jesus. In the garden, and in Joshua 5, we see the way into God's presence is through a sword. At the cross, the sword of God's justice fell on Christ so that we could enter God's holy place. Jesus rose from the dead to bring his people into the land. Joshua is the one who defeats the kings of the land. Jesus defeats the king of the world, Satan. Joshua divided the land to give it to Israel. Jesus will give us the eternal inheritance of the new creation. Joshua gave the people rest in a typological form in Israel. Jesus gives us rest of being in a state of righteousness with God. So the question I have this morning, which, which will affect the rest of the course of your life, is are you resting in Jesus? Are you following him? Are you looking to him and his word? Are you gaining strength to follow him the course of your life? Have you put your faith in, in the saving work of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we see Joshua's call for a new generation to choose who they will serve. And that applies to us. 
Will we serve you or serve idols of this age? We see your holiness in this book, which has implications for how we live. May may we be holy. May we be set apart people for your namesake. We see your faithfulness in this book. Strengthen us to do the hard things and make the most of our life for your glory. We thank you for these students and we thank you for this opportunity to live for you. Help us to make the most of it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.